And now please turn to Psalm 100. The Psalms are in about the middle of your Bible. Number 100. In Psalm 100. Hear the word of the Lord. A psalm for, for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Good evening, everyone. As always, it's a joy and delight to dive into God's word with you. Tonight, we're diving into the short psalm that we just heard, Psalm 100, fitting with the theme of tonight's service, which is around giving thanks to God. This is a psalm that has brought much comfort and delight to Christians over the years and is held dear to the heart of many believers, especially through the versification of this psalm by a man named William Keth, who was a Scottish, a Scottish Protestant Bible translator in the 16th century. And many know this versification and its accompanying tune as the Old Hundredth or as the song, All People That On Earth Do Dwell. And it's been a Protestant favourite for centuries. And after unpacking it together, this, this psalm, I hope that its truth will likewise comfort your hearts as it has mine and saints before us. But before we get there and dive into this rich psalm of thankfulness, we should talk about thankfulness as it's viewed in the world today and ask the question, what is missing in the world's view of thankfulness? Where is it lacking? And what sets true Christian thankfulness apart? Generally, I think you'll find the world's attitude toward thankfulness is that it is virtuous, something to be practiced and desired. People expect thanks when they give a gift or perform something for the benefit of someone else. And this is considered reasonable and polite in society to receive thanks for the gift or thanks for the benefit you gave someone. And usually people are looked at with bitterness if they fail to give adequate thanks for something. But there also seems to be a trend among secular mindfulness and self-help gurus who tend to practice thankfulness as something which is beneficial for the mind and for life. I found an online article titled 60 Things to be Thankful for, which opens by saying that a lack of thankfulness is one of the primary reasons behind people's discontentment with life. And it goes on to say that the path to happiness and well-being only begins with gratitude. The list starts with things like good health, money in the bank, good friends, and it keeps going, cars, sunshine, mountains, sunsets, and, and so on. Now, just quickly, these are good things that we should be genuinely thankful for. But what's missing in this view of thankfulness? What's lacking? What's missing in this secular mindfulness view of thankfulness and generally missing in our world? And what sets true Christian thankfulness apart? 
I hope that as we go through Psalm 100 together, you'll see where the world is deficient and what sets biblical thankfulness apart. For some context before we begin, just to get our bearings in the book of Psalms, Psalm 100 is at the end of a series of Psalms, starting at Psalm 93, which strongly focuses on God's kingship. Psalm 100 is the last of this kingship section, and as the opening superscription indicates, it's a psalm for giving thanks. This psalm before us is calling all the earth to give thanks to God for who he is and what he has done. And the main point of this passage is that we must give joyful thanks and praise to the Lord alone, for he is our good and faithful maker and shepherd king. Let's dive in now. Let's take a look at the text, starting with verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Verses 1 to 2 begin with a string of imperatives, commands. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord. Come into his presence. Each of these are a call to action, a call to worship. Verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord, the covenant Lord of Israel, Yahweh. So when you see capital Lord in your Bible, it indicates the Hebrew text is saying Yahweh. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And this expression could be rendered shout for joy, shout out joyful praise. And it's an invitation from the author of this psalm for everyone, everyone in the whole earth, Jew and Gentile, to rejoice before the King of all. And notice that the address is to all the earth because the Lord is the creator of all the earth, not just Old Testament Israel. All the earth is called to rejoice before the king. The next call is to serve the Lord with gladness. Serving the Lord or worshiping the Lord is the right response of his creation. But more specifically, here is the call to serve the Lord with gladness. There was a godly Christian who once said, He is our God, and therefore he is to be served. And he is our gracious God, and therefore to be served with joy. He is our God, therefore he is to be served. He is our gracious God, and therefore to be served with joy. You see, happy, joyful service and worship of God flows out of recognition of who he is and what he has done and what he is doing. Genuine genuine awareness of God's character and of the privilege we have of worshipping him should produce joy in believers. Consider, too, That according to the gospel, we and our services to God are accepted in Christ. Consider that. Our imperfections and our sins are pardoned. Our holy endeavors are graciously rewarded because God is the one who is working in us. Therefore, we have reason to serve the Lord with gladness. Service of God, when we recognize who we are serving is done with all willingness and joy. It then moves on, saying, come into his presence with singing or shouts of rejoicing. Now, singing 
joy-filled singing, lifting up heart-filled songs as we're moved by God's word and spirit should be a constant form of approach to God. On this verse, I must quote Charles Spurgeon. He says this, The measured, harmonious, hearty utterance of praise by a congregation of really devout persons is not merely proper, but delightful, and is a fit anticipation of the worship of heaven, where praise has absorbed prayer and become the sole mode of adoration. In other words, such joy-filled singing, especially as God's gathered people, is a taste of heaven. Singing or shouts of rejoicing are the right and natural expression of such joy in the Lord. And it should characterize Christian worship. Flowing from these calls to action, we find the psalmist give us reasons for these calls to action in verse 3. Have a look at verse 3 with me. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Verses 1 and 2 flow out of the truth of verse 3. And let's, let's unpack this a little together. The first thing we see, know that the Lord, he is God. In other words, know that Yahweh is God alone. There are no other legitimate gods. Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God. Yahweh is God alone. This truth should drive our exclusive worship of him and turn our hearts from all false gods. And there's also one more imperative here in verse 3. Know, know that the Lord, he is God. And this is simultaneously a call to use our minds and set them upon the truth of Yahweh being the only God and who he is in his character and his works. And this should fuel our praise. When we look to God, knowing who he is, it should fuel our praise. But also this word know is used in a declarative sense, in the sense of confessing him and making open acknowledgement that the Lord is God alone. And such we should do, declaring him, confessing him with our mouths and with our lives. And in following this, we have the next thing that's driving these imperatives. It says, it is he who made us and we are his. Now, this could also very well be translated in the Hebrew. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. And if you have an ESV like I do, it's got a little number next to that verse. And if you follow that to the bottom, you'll see that translation's there for you as well. And this is true in two ways. The first one is it is he who made our beings. It's he who made our beings. The truth is that God has made every one of us. And the pride of our human hearts often forgets this. We become self-serving, self-seeking, self-exalting. But this is a totally wrong response to the one who made you. We didn't make ourselves. God did. God made us, not us. And such a truth should call forth joyful worship and service of him 
It's the only right response of God's creation. And the second way that it's true, that he who it is he who made us and not we ourselves, is that he it is he who made us his people. It's he who made us his people. You see, God is the one who makes a people for himself. It's he who made us his people, his church. And it's his doing that he's called us into a gracious and saving relationship with him. On our own, we are death-deserving sinners in slavery to sin and unable to save ourselves from God's just wrath, which we justly deserve. Yet in his mercy and all by his mercy, all by his choosing, he takes death-deserving sinners and regenerates their hearts, giving them faith in Christ Jesus and draws them unto himself. It's him in his sovereign, gracious work that he forms his body, his church, by effectually calling them from death to life and gathering them as his people. Church, we have not made ourselves. It is God who made us. How great a reason this is to joyfully worship our maker and turn all our praise to him. The last line in verse 3 is, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This language would have been familiar to the people of Israel, an agricultural society where God reveals truth about himself, often with agricultural metaphors. We find in scripture that this shepherding language is often used in reference to God. A famous psalm is Psalm 23, where you can think of this. Often used in reference to God and also to God's anointed king, uh, used of David, for example. Now, ultimately, this language meets in the New Testament in the person of Jesus, God himself in human flesh. Now, here in this psalm, we're seeing that God rules over his people as their loving shepherd king, as the Lord with his covenant people. And how does God shepherd his people? Well, it's by, it's by ruling them. It's by defending them. It's by feeding them in his revealed word and by the Holy Spirit at work in the hearts of his children, in powerfully applying his word to them, guarding them and growing them and ultimately bringing them to persevere until the very end where he will fully and finally conquer all his and our enemies. And again, it's him that made us his sheep. Brothers and sisters, what a great blessing it is to be his people and the sheep of his pasture. And what a great reason to worship, to sing joyfully to the Lord. Now let's go to verse 4. Now here we're going to get another string of imperatives, more calls to thanksgiving and praise. I'll read it. It says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise is language for Old Testament Israel entering God's temple with thankful and joyful hearts. In the Old Testament, coming into the temple was symbolic of coming into God's presence. And that's the idea here. 
that the Old Testament believers were to approach God joyfully. And next follows, give thanks to him, bless his name. Christian, we're invited to give thanks to him and bless his name. Bless the Lord, Yahweh, as the redeemer of his covenant people. And this is the call for us as well to approach our God by faith in Jesus Christ, conscious of his mercy to us, approaching him with thanksgiving and with praise, always keeping in mind his mercy towards us in Christ, conscious of all the benefits of grace that he has given us in him. We must consider what rich benefits we have from him that we may be stirred up to genuine, thankful acknowledgement of all that he's done. And again, we get a reason for the calls to thanksgiving and praise. See verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This verse echoes the self-revelation of God to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 where the Lord passes before him and declares himself to Moses, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the truth that God has self-revealed to Moses. And these attributes are at the heart of God's name, Yahweh, the Lord. It's the heart of his character and identity. All this thanksgiving, all this praise, all this blessing, all this joy is because the Lord is who he is. He is good. He's not evil, not sinful, not in any way bad. He is good. And not only good, but unchangingly good. And the source and fountain of all goodness. God's mercy, his grace, his patience, his love, his forgiveness... His faithfulness are all expressions of God's goodness. What a great reason to praise him for simply who he is. And following on in verse 5 of Psalm 100, we see his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. In other words, his loyal covenant love, his faithfulness to his covenant and to his covenant people is forever And ever, it's unchanging. His disposition towards his people is always one of love and faithfulness. This means that God will do what he has promised and he will keep his covenant people. Now, this is incredible. When you consider it deeply, we are sinful. We deserve to be cut off in justice from the benefits of God's goodness. We deserve to have that stop from coming towards us. Yet because of his constant flow of pardoning mercy in Christ Jesus, 
because of his faithfulness to his covenant promises, promising us life and salvation and holiness and adoption because of his faithfulness. Because of his faithfulness, the channel of his goodness is open to us, always open to us in Christ Jesus, that his goodness may run towards us forever. What great comfort for us is that to draw from. In God's faithful, loving, good and merciful character. And in looking to him, we will always have great motivation for praising, thanking and blessing God. What a glorious call we have in this psalm to give thanks to God. Praise God. Give thanks to him. Serve him with joy. Give thanks, for he is a great God. And how might we do this? Well, it must take expression in our whole lives. Give thanks always in prayer. Give thanks and praise him in your heart as you meditate upon him. Give thanks and praise in singing, singing joyfully. Singing heartily, singing with zeal to the God of all creation. And giving thanks and praise as well in the way that you live. And I encourage you now, take a look at your own life. Are you living in such a way that gives thanks to God? Do you perhaps even thank him with your mouth, but fail to do so in living rightly for him? God delights in a life lived in joyful thanksgiving to his glory. And that our whole lives be lived this way, living in joyful obedience to him. And where we have failed, run to our merciful God. Run to him in Christ and find forgiveness and strengthen him. Seeking to run from sin and self-serving and turning your heart and life to his praise alone. Run to him and find mercy in Christ. And before we close, we need to answer the question. What is lacking in the secular view of thankfulness? What's lacking in the secular view of thankfulness? Quite simply, God. God is lacking in the worldly view of thankfulness. It's entirely devoid of the one to whom all thankfulness should be directed Thankfulness is biblically also never an end in itself, but it must be directed towards the God of all creation, the Lord, Yahweh. That is what sets Christian thanksgiving apart. It's directed towards him. And how empty is thanksgiving when God is not in the picture? And what a privilege we have in being able to give thanks to him. And we should be seeking, we should be seeking that all people everywhere rightly give thanks to God. When we see this in our world, we see people giving thanks without God in the picture. We should be seeking that all people be giving thanks to the God of the universe. God's call in verse 1 is that all the earth make a joyful noise unto him. The Lord greatly delights in the praise of all the nations. And if this is God's heart and desire, 
We must have our hearts and minds on the going out of the gospel, spreading the gospel around us, spreading the gospel to those who do not know the only true God and his goodness, his faithfulness, and his steadfast love. We must seek to bring the gospel to as many as we can, seeking his praise and worship alone. And in every way that we can, seeking to support the work of the spread of his gospel, of his name, seeking exclusive worship of him, for our God greatly delights in thanksgiving and praise that's directed towards him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a good and gracious God. We thank you that your goodness towards us who trust in Christ is constant, that you are faithful, that you are constantly merciful. Lord, that we can look to you and know that the promises you've made to us are going to happen. Lord, we know that everything you've promised us in Christ will happen only because of your mercy and because of your grace and what great reason we have to thank you. And Lord, we pray that we would thank you with our whole lives and Lord, that our hearts would greatly rejoice in our King, our Maker, our Shepherd. And we pray, Lord, that you would drive us to thankfulness in every way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.